Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, bringing you events from the Heyman Center archive. This podcast is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscom. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on September 24th, 2018, honoring the work of Adam Tews, the Catherine and Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of History at Columbia University. Professor Tews studies the political, economic, and intellectual history of Europe and the United States from the 20th century to the present. He has written about the history of economic knowledge, as well as the political and economic history of World Wars I and II, and the systems of international relations that emerged afterward. In his 2018 book, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crises Changed the World, Professor Tews draws on this historical context to write a global history of the 2008 financial crisis. In telling the story of the financial crisis, Professor Tews reveals that the close financial relationship between Europe and the United States is still deeply relevant to the global economy. He also shows how the crisis generated an important new economic paradigm, one that focuses on the actions of the world's biggest corporations rather than national economies. For these reasons, Professor Tews argues that the financial crisis poses a political question that is still unsolved. How can capitalist democracies respond to the concentration of power in a small group of transnational corporations? First, we will hear Professor Tews discuss what is new about his book's arguments and how they draw on his previous historical research. Then, we will hear a response from Katerina Pistor, the Michael I. Sovereign Professor of Law at the Columbia Law School. Let me say, I guess, uh, three things about the book. You can think of them as sort of disciplinary uh, uh, things, different, three different angles. One is that it, one is that it's a, it's a, it's a piece of uh, global, global history in which the challenge, really, of writing the book uh, was to knit together uh, narratives uh, from all over the world and to assemble them into something like a coherent uh, picture, uh, and to, and to, to assemble them as a story, so as to assemble them as a narrative uh, that, that uh, followed a dynamic storyline. Um, which did justice to the complexity of an event that was truly global and that I was determined to show as global, um, that placed uh, at the heart of the story, not the story of uh, the US economy alone or the European economy in the Eurozone crisis after 2010, uh, but, but focused squarely on the centrality of the transatlantic axis as the core of this crisis. Um, and then around that wove a variety of different stories about uh, Russia, China, uh, the emerging markets as a sort of uh, backdrop to that narrative. And, and that, that was one challenge in writing the book. Uh, and it was a challenge that I took on um, in part because uh, it was a challenge I'd already addressed in other history books uh, related to transatlantic economic relations, uh, most explicitly in the last book I did, uh, Deluge. Uh, on uh, the reconfiguration of world power in World War One and its aftermath, which is a story really about how the rise of the United States transformed power relations around the world, uh, also implicitly in the, the, the wages of destruction. So that was one element of the task in writing this book, was to continue that narrative of transatlantic relations centred on 
financial interrelations and how they and how they how they affected the wider world. Um, and and the key one of the key as it were discoveries one of the key remappings that the book performs. It's not my discovery by any means, and I'll come on to that in just a second. But one of the arguments that the book is making um, is that to understand financial globalization in the early 21st century, we still, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, have to focus on the old Atlantic axis, which goes back at least to the 18th century, uh, and became and took on its distinctively modern form uh, around World War I, and then its latest and updated form in the 1960s in the form of the Eurodollar market. And that this somewhat at odds with, I think, the narrative of globalization that we had that dominated particularly in the US in the early 2000s was not, therefore, first and foremost, a Sino-American story, but a Euro-American story. Um, and and the, this was uh, strangely absent, in fact, from, I think, from wider consciousness. At the time of the crisis, less so, but in the aftermath and in the retelling, I think it became, as it were, two separate narratives that did not connect. And my mission in writing the book, uh, and that really has been my primary purpose in writing the book, has to uh, been to put that relationship squarely back at the centre of the story, which I think is something that both Americans and Europeans need to hear. They needed to hear it when I started writing the book. They perhaps needed to hear it even more today. So that was, that was, that was one. Tell a story of the crisis as a transatlantic story with a global dimension. That was the historian's uh, challenge. But to do that, um, I found, uh, to my surprise, increasing fascination and delight, that there was in fact a very interesting story to tell about the development of economics as well. Sorry, this mic keeps going in and out. And, and that's a story about the fragmentation in the face of the crisis of familiar ways of thinking about international economics. Uh, ways of thinking about the uh, international economics which I had traced in my first book back to the early 20th century, the aftermath of World War I, and the development in that period of what we came to know as national macroeconomics. So the accounting framework that we identify with the name of Keynes and that is solidified in things like national income accounting, current account statistics and so on. And those were in fact essentially unhelpful in understanding what was happening in 2008. And what was dramatic and fascinating um, is that, in fact, almost exactly as the crisis began, a new brand of economics emerged, uh, which is called macrofinancial economics, which breaks through the familiar assumptions about national economies and substitutes for them a focus on the balance sheets of the biggest banks. It's as though capitalism caught up with economics. Um, what critics of globalization have been saying since the 1970s, which is that big corporations and their interactions dominate the world economy, was emphatically true. Nothing could demonstrate it more powerfully than the collective uh, financial heart attack of 2008. And there was a brand of economics emerging as the crisis struck to understand this. And really, the mission of the book from that point of view is to craft a narrative out of that new macro-financial literature, which circulates in amongst the Cognoscenti, Perry Merling, our former colleague at Barnard, was one of the key figures in this. We worked through INET. Uh, bank economists work on this BIS types. And what I wanted to do in this book was to place that at the heart of the narrative. And by doing so, displace, frankly, some of the existing accounts, which were still framed, to my mind, anachronistically in the mode of national economics, which belonged to the mid-20th century rather than to the 21st century. And that brought me to then my third task, which is, I think, uh, you know, the one which um, 
uh, the third element of this, which is uh, my long-standing interest in social theory, political theory, and the question of power. Um, because illuminating as this new focus, not on national economies, but on corporations is, um, and powerful as it is in terms of giving us purchase on economic reality in a way that we were not able to get it by way of the sort of euphemistic abstractions of Keynesian macroeconomics, it poses an absolutely fundamental political question, which is how are capitalist democracies going to govern themselves if they frankly face the fact that power is concentrated in oligopolistic large corporations? And this, I think, is really the question of the question of the present uh, in many dimensions. We see that in you know, ongoing debates about inequality, uh, oligopoly in the tech sector, and so on. And I'll just wrap up by saying that on this third axis, this seems to me the question that I ask across a whole variety of different dimensions, that what the, question, what the crisis exposed was that in the regulation of domestic finance, uh, in the management of transatlantic finance, in the Eurozone itself, uh, and then in the relations between the West, if you like, that emerged triumphant from the Cold War and its immediate neighbors, notably Russia, the question of the political frame of economic deep, deep, deep financial integration driven necessarily by private interests was begged again and again and again and again. The question was posed, it was clearly forced by the scale of integration, and yet, fundamentally, the question was not even posed explicitly, let alone provided with an adequate answer. And we say this about the Eurozone all the time, a monetary union without a fiscal union, but you could say the same thing about the transatlantic, essentially a financial union without an economic, a political match. Uh, and we could say very much the same thing about the deep integration of Eastern Europe, massive financial absorption without a geopolitical deal with the Russians. Ironically, the only bit of the global financial system which did have a clear, explicitly formulated, supervening political frame was the relationship with China, which was the one that was expected to explode in 2007-8 and didn't. Perhaps precisely because it was always acknowledged as a geoeconomic, geopolitical problem was managed as such. So when Larry Summers quipped about the, the threat of mutually assured financial destruction or the balance of financial terror, he was kind of closer to the truth than I think he even realized, in the sense that, like MAD, like nuclear uh, balance, this was explicitly managed and turned out to be something that could take us to the edge of disaster that didn't. What did was the, was the banking crisis. But those are the three dimensions, I think, of the book that I would highlight. Next, we hear a response from Katerina Pistor, the Michael I. Severn Professor of Law at the Columbia Law School. Professor Pistor theorizes the relationship between law and finance and is an expert in international financial regulation. In her comments, Professor Pistor challenges some of the arguments that frame Professor Tuse's book and expresses skepticism about legal solutions for the economic problems raised in the book. Afterward, we will hear Professor Tooze restate and reformulate his book's arguments in response to these challenges. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for inviting me to both read the book and then comment on it. I, I have to say, so giving you uh, 616 pages to read and then allowing you to comment for five, five to ten minutes is <laughs> cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> <laughs> so let me just, I will just focus in on, on four points that the book raised for me, and there are many, many others, and the book is there's even more in there than the thickness of the book might suggest. I want to make for um, uh, or touch upon four issues. One is, is it truly a transatlantic axis or isn't it, it really Anglo-American at core, at its core nonetheless? 
Uh, the second question is, um, you know, who are the real actors? Because we find a lot of reactors in this book, but few clear actors, if any. Um, I want to ask what clashed. I'm still not clear what really clashed mm -hmm. in this book. Um, and I want to just briefly touch upon the solutions and just say, um, well, when you ask at the very end, does the law offer a solution? I say, well, no, not, 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 not the law. <laughs> well, yeah, um, clear. So the first one, um, I think you're right, it's a transatlantic axis, but at the core of the transatlantic relationship is an Anglo-Saxon, an Anglo-American apex, right? The entire book is about the hierarchy of financial systems. And I would add to that, if you think at it from a, about it from a legal point of view, every financial asset at every financial intermediary is coded in law. Mm -hmm. And in theory, you could actually sustain a global financial system with only a single legal system, mm -hmm. as long as all the other states recognize the mm -hmm. creatures of that legal system. And I think, in truth, we don't have one legal system that sustains global finance, but two. It's England, not the UK. It's English common law, and it's the laws of the state of New York. Everything else is, <laughs> is declaration around it. And that's where all, I think, where the core action is. And I think when you go back, also the euro-dollar market is sort of, this is where the core financial system, um, innovation happens. This is where the financial intermediaries are. And this is actually also where the 100 global law firms are in those yeah. So I think it is actually at the core Anglo-American. I grant you the Euroset crisis is not separate. It's really important to make that um, uh, clear in the book. This, this is related. And of course, the, the Euro was created under assumptions, almost as if we could still have capital controls. I mean, they said you can't, and they changed the treaty and said free capital flow. But they completely did not understand that they did this on the background of a system that had been completely unleashed, where you could basically mint capital in law as freely as never before. And clearly, the Euro's institutions were much less prepared for that than even the American or the English ones, which crashed sort of too, or were also challenged, to say the very least. So I would still say they're sort of at the very core, in the micro level, institutions is all um, the common law, essentially. Um, where are the actors? Um, you know, even if you think about core and periphery, we talk about Bernanke um, a lot in Draghi, and you see the key actors at the central banks doing stuff. Even Malcolm, mm. one of the protagonists, is exercising veto power. Nobody acts. Everybody reacts. And it's, at some level, I think we have to, especially also, when you, you say this in power um, discussion, is the oligopolis um, um, of corporate, um, of big corporations and big banks, etc. And yet, one still wonders whether one couldn't um, be sort of more more, more precise um, about this. And I think you know we can't really dispense of the state either. If I'm right, it's all about the law, and the law is sponsored by states. It doesn't exist without that. And for me, one of the most remarkable things is that after the crisis, when the financial system crashed, the state-sponsored financial global financial system crashed. Nobody made a serious attempt to regain control over that system, yeah, yeah. even though it's coded in law. We seem yeah. to have the means, but we yeah, seem yeah. not to be able to to um, exercise them. So, so that I think is one of the most remarkable puzzles. And in a way, because you tell the story like a political story of the 19th century, so all the state actors that mm. you recount, you just one gets sort of so confused at some points as well. But they are all bystanders. At some level, they are ironically all bystanders. Mm. And um, I just want to make that you know to just push that a little bit further. Just um, also, I, actually, I should say at the beginning, I thought at some point, why don't we tell the story from the perspective of the assets or the financial intermediary? Why are we still talking mm. about these political players because they play such a bystander role? Then my question, of course, is what crashed? And the financial system didn't really crash because we rescued it from mm. the abyss. Why mm. it didn't crash? 
um, what crashed seems to me um, is a particular compromise of the liberal left um, that you can have that you can have it all. You can have wealth and richness, and you can satisfy the poorer people by just putting them on the um, credit dependence. Right? So that is basically what uh, what crash. You don't have to redistribute. You don't have to fight the political fights um, to redistribute. We can simply make sure that they have all access to. And mm -hmm. that notion, of course, is crazy. Misty could have told us um, that earlier. Um, and I think, um, again, so what we do now is that we basically pump liquidity in the system. We're just basically saying state money to mm -hmm. rescue the private um, credit production from its own um, follies. Here again, I think so the state <coughs> is actually up front um, um, and, and center. And the interesting thing is that it, is that it sort of fulfills these roles um, all, all, all the time. And here's one tension I find in the in the book, I mean, you, you, I think, in a way, you correctly criticize Maribel that um, you know, she vetoed everything that would have had that effect, pumping liquidity of the system. But that is, to me, the quintessential technocratic solution to the technocratic system that you also criticize because it misses the democratic politics. Mm -hmm. um, and then, lastly, just a, a point on the um, on, on, on the solutions. You know, when I say so, it's you know the entire system is constructed in law, then of course. Law must be the solution, but law must be the solution in a very different way, right? Because all the MBSs, CMOs, CBOs, CBSs, repos, swaps, the rehypothesization of all these instruments, the marginal cost, the, everything is coded in law. And every decent lawyer in the city of New York or London will tell you that any public financial regulation that you put in place to tame the beast, they will mute. They will mute it. They will just get around it. Right, yeah. With the classic instruments of private law. It's not the public law in which this is all coded. So, you know, when, when, I, when we don't think about this law, the solution, well, it's going to be really, really difficult to make the solution. It's certainly, unless you go to the root causes, I don't think mm -hmm. you can catch it. But it was a great week. I really enjoyed it very much. <laughs> <laughs> Let me, let me just work backwards and maybe just fill out, make sure everyone's on the same page about some of the, some of the terms that are being thrown around here. Um, the island model and the network model. So the island model is thinking about the global economy as though it consisted of an archipelago of national economies, which then trade with each other coconuts for bananas. And then we think of the global economy as being organized as coconut dealers and banana buyers and uh, then we spiral out, we have orange groves and so on, and this is the sort of classical vision. You can complicate that, obviously people can have different mixes of those things. But you start with national islands which trade commodities which you identify with countries. And this is basically how national economic accounting, national income accounting represents national entities. And what uh, 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 Hyoshan Shin uh, at the BIS has suggested in this rather ominous phrase that in fact the world economy is dominated not by little islands trading bananas and, and coconuts, but the interlocking matrix of corporate balance sheets. So that would be the banana trader and the coconut trader, not viewed as islands, but everything that goes on inside their businesses meshed with each other. And that is how we have to think of the world economy now. When you think of it that way, you think, well, there's thousands, millions of firms. That's impossibly complex. But it turns out that only 30 banks matter. <laughs> so at that stage, this is just crude simplification. But literally, we have a list, and they're called globally systemically important financial institutions, GCP or GCIB. And then there's a similar list at each national level. And if you look at their balance sheets, 
and the way in which they interlock, you get the vast majority of a certain sort of financial activity. It's the bank balance sheet based bit. And so the proposal is that the, and the break that we're suffering is that we need to move from looking at the world economy as though it was a bunch of islands to looking at it as though it was the interlocking of these balance sheets. And that is indeed, in some odd sense, a return to late 19th, early 20th century imperialism theory of the type that people like Lenin uh, and Hobson developed. But, and what I'm arguing is that in this kind of ellipse of the intervening period, for reasons which have to do with dem democratization and social democracy and the New Deal and the management of capitalism under democratic conditions, we put in between the island model. Because in so many ways, if we think of ourselves as all on a jolly island and sharing the proceeds from banana sales and then trading for coconuts, which we all want, this is a much easier political model of thinking about how the economy works. And what we have to face now is a return to a much more naked uh, vision of how the economy functions. And this is not simply a political move. It's forced on us by the way in which these global market works. And the risks in 2008 were in the balance sheets of those top 30 to 100 types of banks. And then within the Eurozone, they were played out again within the balance sheets of the cross-national banks within the Eurozone. And then some local bites like the Tapas in, in Spain. And then to take up the key point um, that Katerina made, those balance sheets are kind of amorphous and spread geographically. Uh, and, uh, but one of the two centers between which the financial ones are constitutively spread since the 1960s are absolutely the city of London and uh, Wall Street. And that is where all of the global financial action is between the balance sheet of Lehman in Wall Street and the balance sheet of Lehman in London. And the way that relates to the balance sheet of JP Morgan uh, or, or Morgan Stanley or Barclays or Deutsche Bank. Into the central and, then, and then up to the central bank. And I would completely grant Katerina that those are the two nodes. But of course, the players in London and Wall Street are much more motley. They are British. I mean, as Mervyn King famously commented about the city of London, it's like Wimbledon. Yeah. Very, very occasionally a British person wins. Uh, that's not what you go for. You go for the global party hosted on a beautiful English lawn. And that's what, that's what the city of London is, right? It's not a... And, and it's a party that, of course, is absolutely, and I have just little lines, because I know your work and appreciate it, now these little lines saying, like, and it's the law that does it. Evidently, the, the facility of New York law and English law enables that as a key element. And then everyone comes to play on those terms. But it really is everyone, and the European banks are knee-deep in this. It's certainly to, you know, to, to every bit as much as the British banks in particular. So when we say the city of London and Wall Street, we should really not be thinking in national categories at all. We should just be thinking on a big corporate playground. So let me let me just let me just wrap this up by by uh, one one insubstantial point and then um, some more uh, substantial points. So the insubstantial point is that I didn't pick the title. So uh, the, the, the way that this works is that. They have an idea of what the book's about. It was supposed to be called Sudden Stop. And then they designed a cover and recognized that Sudden Stop didn't look good on the cover, literally. So then the hunt was on for a one-word thing that would look good on the cover. That's how the title comes up. So obviously, yes, you're absolutely right. The financial system didn't crash. And what's astonishing about this episode is, in a sense, it's like the Cuban Missile Crisis. We saw over the edge, we saw the end of the world, and then we pulled back. But I would strongly agree with you that the thing that really did break uh, is the political anchoring of this system. 
But I would argue it broke on both sides. I mean, certainly the social democratic, the Tony Blair, Bill Clinton, uh, Gayhart Schroeder vision broke, um, which was squaring a globalist, neoliberal, for want of a better word, economic policy with its old blue-collar base, basically on the premise that the blue-collar voters had nowhere else to go to. So they would stick with the parties, whatever they did. I mean, what we're witnessing now uh, in the United States, above all, and uh, in America as well, is the fracturing of that deal on the right-hand side. Uh, and you could see that in the Republican Party already in the summer of 2008, because, I mean, in the middle of that crisis, as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were going down with a Republican presidency in the middle of an election season, they couldn't whip the Republican votes behind the bailout of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or top. Uh, you know, if you need a clearer signal of that compromise breaking down, that goes back at least as far as NAFTA, where you can see the elites of both parties converging on a deal which marginalised both of their bases to an extent. Um, so we would agree that is the bit that really breaks. But this is indeed the crucial political question. What do we do uh, with the nakedness of this new macro-credential paradigm? What do we do with the nakedness of this vision of the economy um, as an interlocking network of corporate balance sheets? Um, because in that ellipse in between, a vision, a conception of the economy, um, a technical mechanism for managing it, and the politics and indeed an international politics in the form of the New, uh, the New Deal, Marshall Plan, and Bretton Woods went hand in hand. There was a logically, politically persuasive narrative that you could spin because we were going to manage the national cake. And once we'd managed the national cake and grown it and prevented recessions, we could then distribute the national cake better. You could postpone distributional arguments until you'd grown the national cake. There was an entire logic of political economic management that linked organically to national political entities and could be translated into policy. And what we've got right now, I think, is a, is a sort of uh, an indeterminate expertise, the politics of which are very unclear, um, which terrifies conservatives because it's very, very intrusive if taken seriously. And if they do not gain it, as Katerina suggests, the macro and prudential stuff, you can know things about banks now you wouldn't have dreamt of knowing 15 years ago. And it's official kind of knowledge. But on the other hand, of course, it's also the product of, in the crisis of 08, utterly incestuous, nakedly oligarchic uh, deals which stabilized the system. Um, the October 13th meeting in the Treasury uh, in 2008 cannot be outdone, I think. And one is forced, I think, back into classic Marxian categories. This is the executive committee of the American bourgeoisie doing its thing. If not, then never. Like, but that has got to be the test. Um, and, 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 and it is indeed uh, uh, very, very open. Or what, we do, what we do with this knowledge, how, what purposes it could be served, what political project it could be harnessed to, I think is the open question. I, mean, I think the question of like, could it be regulated by law is maybe one sentence at the very, the, the very end, yes, yeah, just one sentence in passing. So um, could rules solve the problem is the question. And, I, and I, would, I would take the answer to be evidently not, and indeed even thinking in terms of rules as anything more than a temporary expedient is, is one way to be blindsided. Uh, what it seems to me that we need, and it's difficult to know how to do this, but this should surely be the challenge, is to equip regulators with the same kind of vision of the people that they're regulating. In other words, that there is a sort of moving frontier of opportunities and challenges and opportunities for profit in the case of the of the businesses and, and we should formulate some function that incentivizes regulators equivalently um, because 
capitalism is a process of creative destruction. It's not agriculture. You know, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's I mean, agriculture. Maybe even understating how. You know, it's the the vision that say ordo liberal neoliberals have of economic regulation is so static. It's a question of finding an order that will somehow last, and then they're surprised that it gets blown away every decade. We should have the reverse attitude. I mean, this is such a fast-moving frontier, constantly intersecting with tech and everything else, that it has to be regulated at that kind of pace. So, of course, the question there is how do you do something that isn't basically just endless politicized discretion, which is then, of course, open to, to capture. But that's where the political problem comes is. That is the political challenge, that we, we cannot afford ever to go to sleep on this thing at any point. Um, because the other side of the game, of course, doesn't. They're massively incentivized to constantly churn, undermine any regulations that you pass and find new ways for making profit. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Adam Tooze's book, Crashed. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Maggie Chow's book, The End of Landscape in 19th Century America from Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com.